It sounds funny, I know, but it really is so. Oh, I'm my own grandpa. I'm my own grandpa. I'm my own grandpa. It sounds funny, I know. But it really is so Oh, I'm my own grandpa Now many, many years ago When I was 23 I was married to a widder Who was pretty as could be This widder had a grown-up daughter Who had hair of red My father fell in love with her And soon they two were wed This made my dad my son-in-law And changed my very life my daughter was my mother, cause she was my father's wife. To complicate the matter, even though it brought me joy, I soon became the father of a bouncing baby boy. My little baby then became a brother-in-law to dad, and so became my uncle, though it made me very sad. For if he was my uncle, then that also made him brother of the widow's grown-up daughter, who of course was my stepmother. I'm my own grandpa I'm my own grandpa It sounds funny, I know But it really is so Oh, I'm my own grandpa Father's wife then had a son Who kept them on the run And he became my grandchild For he was my daughter's son My wife is now my mother's mother And it makes me blue because although she is my wife, she's my grandmother too. I'm my own grandpa. I'm my own grandpa. It sounds funny, I know, but it really is so. Oh, I'm my own grandpa. My wife is my grandmother, then I'm her grandchild. And every time I think of it, it nearly drives me wild. For now I have become the strangest case you ever saw. As husband of my grandmother, I am my own grandpa. I'm my own grandpa. I'm my own grandpa. It sounds funny, I know, but it really is so. Oh, I'm my own grandpa. So you're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM, and I'm talking to Stu Hempel right now about his uh, collection of comic strip, Dread and Superficiality, the Woody Allen comic strips from, was it 76 to 84? Uh, yes, exactly. Excellent. Um, it's a pretty fantastic collection. It's not a complete collection, but... Uh, your favorites, I guess, or is it complete? Is it ever not complete? There are probably three to 4,000 of them, and this, I think, <laughs> has 220. There we go. That I selected with himself, Woody. Oh, really? Yep. So he was involved in the process with this book. He um, is a very detailed, fastidious man, and I show him everything. For example, it was he who suggested I write the preface. I really wanted to get a couple of his old colleagues 
and friends, uh, Marshall Brickman and Dick Cavett. You know who they are, I assume. I know Dick Cavett. Yeah, well, Marshall Brickman and Dick and Woody were all, as, as uh, youngsters in their 20s, I believe uh, accepted in the NBC comedy writing program. I think NBC paid them 100 bucks a week or something equally small. And they began and, and filtered out into the medium of, of radio and television, actually, at that time. And Woody went on, on to do a couple of shows. Dick, of course, did uh, worked for Parr, I believe, and, and perhaps for Carson, and so did Marshall Brickman. But Marshall's name uh, is connected with Woody because he co-wrote uh, both Annie Hall and Manhattan. Oh, really? Okay. Co-wrote is a misnomer in a way. Woody would uh, Woody <laughs> only did that with two or three people that he liked, and actually they talk the script, they talk the concept and the script through, and then Woody actually does the writing. <laughs> Marshall's now the, uh, this isn't about Marshall, but just to give you context, he's the co-book writer of the successful musical Jersey Boys. Oh, okay. And also wrote and directed a couple of movies, one of which was called Simon. So that's who Marshall is. At any rate, back to my point, um, um, uh, I thought I'd get Marshall and, and Dick, who've known Woody uh, maybe a little longer than I have. I've known them maybe 40 years and change. Uh, to I would record them, I thought, and then make a, a preface out of that. And he said, no, nah, no, nah, you were there. Why don't, why don't you do it? What he meant by you were there was when he was in his late 20s, uh, I knew his manager, still his manager by a handshake only, Jack Rollins. And Jack uh, let me follow him around to little comedy spots. There, were not, there was no proliferation like now. This is 1960. Uh, seven or eight, I imagine, that I'm talking about, the late 60s. Mm -hmm. uh, before Woody had a big name, he played sometimes for free and sometimes for 50 bucks at places mostly around Greenwich Village. The Bitter End was one upstairs at the duplex. The duplex was a, had a two-floor thing. And I used to watch Woody. What he meant by you were there was you watched me develop and fight the audience. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of my getting to sit with those amusing guys, Woody uh, had me write the preface, which I did. And now to the end of the point is that he wanted to look it over, which he did. <laughs> <laughs> He's definitely in a tour. But he changed very little, by the way. He changed, he changed only two minor details. The most minor was that when we were doing the comic strip, and before it came out, I don't know if you know about comics, but... I, I have fair amount. I, I, yes, you do. Of course, <laughs> you have a site too, don't you? Yeah. Uh, did you invent that site? Uh, I had someone help me. Well, it's pretty terrific. I love Thanks. it. Anyway, uh, so we were six weeks ahead. So a uh, number of months before the strip came out, I had to go to Woody's apartment then on Fifth Avenue every Saturday to show him the new seven strips that I was doing. Uh, he would go over them and help me adapt material. He didn't write it. He just directed me to stuff or corrected stuff. But I took with me always the publicity for the strip that was coming out. And one Saturday I had a newspaper from Sao Paulo, Brazil, which on the front page, it was a major daily down there, uh, had a picture of me, a picture of Woody and, uh, and a reproduction of the strip. I said, well, look at this. Isn't this great? I was always hyping the thing because I wanted him to love it. He, he looked at the page closely and he said, well, I don't speak Portuguese. I said, oh, come on, even if you don't speak Portuguese, you can see that this is a major article on the front page of a terrific newspaper. He looked again, he said, I don't see Zwief any place. 
I don't know if you know French, but juif is the word for Jew. That's what I've heard. <laughs> it's French paranoia. I said, oh, oh, come on, stop stop making fun. It, it, it shows how, how popular you are in a, in a foreign country. He said, why am I always popular in countries where they torture people? Now, when he says something like that, he never he never makes a mue or does a bada boom or yeah. gives a look. It just comes out. What he, I wrote that in the preface, among other things. What he changed he changed it to. This shows you how his mind works. He said, "No, no, I'd rather have that read. Why am I always popular in countries with one crop economies?" Mm-hmm. So back in in uh, in uh, when we were doing this trip. He flipped that thing off and said, "Where they torture people." It was a joke, but with it was not very observational. Now, all these years later, he, his mind told him when he read my copy that there's it's a co- company that lives on coffee. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, that he 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 really made it a richer joke. It's not as funny, but it has roots. And so that's one minor thing he changed. And the other thing I think is amusing. Uh, and this is in the preface of the book, which I wrote. I've written this stuff in the book. I'm telling it to you, but it's there in print. Um, I said that when I met him in his early 20s, and he was unknown, it looked like nothing so much as... I, I said his skin was as white uh, as the underbelly of a frog, and he looked like nothing so much as a yeshiva student inimical to physical exercise. He changed yeshiva to sociology. <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise, he left everything intact. <clears throat> it, it's really fascinating that he still has like such a, a control or involvement of his persona. Well, uh, even though this seems really comparative now to, to then, far more detached from the Woody Allen. Like, in the 70s, you he was doing more of this comedy stuff, but now he isn't doing so much of the comedy stuff. It's a lot more of the, the serious movies, but he's still, it still holds together, I guess. Well, let me try to place that in the context of, of him as I see him. <clears throat> uh, he was, at the time we were doing this trip, editing uh, Annie Hall, by the way. Mm. And the only, he was doing some stand-up, but the, those were mainly uh, large contracts uh, like Las Vegas and perhaps in New York at the Copacabana or wherever he played, the big venues that had been booked for him when he was still a stand-up comedy guy, and they booked him, let's say, for the next season or two or three, you know. So he had to go do them, and I saw him do one in Vegas long after he was done in his mind being a stand-up, and he was not pleased. <laughs> there were no cordless mics, or at least he didn't have one. He had a long black tail wire on the mic, and he was flinging it around as though or a whip, you know. He was kind of attacking. It was interesting. But but to, to talk about what you spoke about, his, his detail, or you said controlling, he, um, um, uh, early on in his career, he demanded that he would not do pictures anymore unless he could direct them. His first, um, well, his first picture was Take the Money and Run, which he did, in fact, direct. Mm-hmm. and wrote with an old school chum from Brooklyn named Mickey Rose. They wrote two films. I think that and perhaps perhaps Bananas, and then they didn't work together after that. But but uh, his the first picture he did soon after those two, and he did not direct it, was called What's New Pussycat? You may recall that. 
Yep. It had, it had two Peters in it, Peter O'Toole and Peter Sellers, and and maybe one of the James Bond girls, Ursula Andress, or somebody like that, Ursula Undress. At any <laughs> rate, <laughs> it was directed in mostly in England, I think, or perhaps Paris, perhaps Paris, by Richard Donner, who was a, you know, a run-of-the-mill good uh, Hollywood uh, director. Woody was paid $35,000 to do the script. It was an adaptation of some other script, which he hated, which he threw out. <clears throat> and Warren Beatty originally was supposed to play in this. The title, gosh, I do get away from the mothership, don't I? Do you yeah. want all this peripheral? Oh, it's a, it's all interesting. I, I don't mind. <laughs> if you're fine well, with it. Oh, yeah, I'm fine. I can. I, I love it. I love all this old funky stuff. Um, um, uh, uh, they were in a production office that is on, on the picture. It didn't have a name. Warren Beatty had, I think, the Peter O'Toole role at that time. He subsequently didn't play it. But he was in the office, and some secretary, the phone rang in the production. She called out, oh, Warren uh, Beatty, uh, th- there's somebody on the phone for you. Uh, 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 it's a woman. He said, uh, she said she's your fiance. And Warren shouted back, oh, good, get her name and tell her I'll call her back. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you that, it gives the kind of madness that was surrounding that film. And so at night, the, the powerful actors, Woody was virtually unknown. He had done the two small films, uh, got his 35,000. The two big actors were Peter Sellers and Peter O'Toole. And at night, they would go over the script and take Woody's great jokes. He was very young then. And and rewrite the script so they got the jokes. So Woody was, of course, under contract. But after that film, he said, "I will never do another film I don't direct." Yeah. He wanted the power then. I don't know that it was. I don't think it was a matter of control for its own sake. I'd never felt that because I worked with him a lot. I think it was control for the purity of his artistic. And that, that's that's what I mean. Yeah, I think, I think yeah. you're right on. And and with the strip, I I had to show him every strip for the first number of years, not for the whole eight. Yeah. But, but on this book, which he did not write, I mean, it, obviously it's based on him, and he was a, a certain part of the comic strip, but he never actually wrote it. He had given me uh, the right to use any of his material from stand-up, from his books, from his scripts, from his films, and then he gave me hundreds and hundreds of pages of jokes which had been typed up by his assistant whenever he has joke ideas, and they pour out of him like like the geysers at Yellowstone Park. They never <laughs> stop. He's always thinking of not trying, but they're there. Concepts for movies and plays and stories and just one-liners well, or phrases. It, it makes me think of, like, uh, friends I have that are cartoonists that always have to draw. Like, that's that's what they do. They draw. So it sounds like with him, it's just... He thinks, and he But as creates. a cartoonist, and I'm only an eighth-rate cartoonist. <laughs> oh, well, no, that's not true. That's too modest. I, I think I'm a sixth, maybe I'm a sixth-rate uh, cartoonist. I, I'm always, and the cartoonists I know, we're always struggling to come up with, with ideas. I don't believe that Woody struggles. The point I'm trying to make is that he, they are in him, and they just come out of every mm-hmm. pore. That's what I mean. Yeah, no, that's what I'm going to. Like, I have friends that are like that, that just have to draw all the time. Like, oh, we'll, we'll be having lunch, and the one person just go and grab a newspaper and start, start drawing on the cover of the uh-huh. newspaper and altering the images. And Oh, boy. Well, I, I kind of suffer a little more than that. But Woody, Woody had these pages, and whenever he thought of stuff, he would write it down. You'll find it on scripts, on napkins, on hotel stationery, on yellow pads. And he would give them to his assistant, and then they were typed into pages, and he gave me all of that stuff. Sometimes they were only a word or uh, just a short phrase, a shard. Sometimes a sentence. Sometimes 
a concept notion or a whole a whole thing. For example, there was one in the book that said uh, it, it was it was written out. He thought it out. I don't know that he even ever used it. It said uh, Sigmund Freud could never order blintzes. Do you know what a blintz is, Robin? It's, uh, yeah, it's a pastry. Okay. I yeah. wanted to be careful. Yeah. <laughs> he, he said, Sigmund Freud could never order blintzes. He would go into an appetite. Oh, oh, I know. Sigmund Freud could never order blintzes. He couldn't say the word. He would go into an appetizer store and say, uh, uh, would you give me some of those uh, crepes with cheese in the middle? And the, uh, the store uh, proprietor would say, ah, uh, do you mean blintzes here, professor? And Freud would turn all red and run out into the streets of Vienna, his cape flying uh, 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 furious, and he invented psychoanalysis and made sure it wouldn't work. Now, that whole <laughs> thing was in there. That's one of the longer ones. I was able, if I wished, to take things like that and make them, in, that would have been a Sunday page. I don't know yeah. if I ever did it. There were things like that. I remember one, which I never did do. It said, just a sentence, I was born Jewish and a Democrat. I didn't know which was my religion. So <laughs> he gave me these pages, and I found lots of wonderful stuff in there. There's one I was reading earlier, which really, I think, encapsulated just the aesthetic that Woody would be going for. And it was about uh, um, acting and learning how to act and how uh, you know it was hard for him to act. And he read about Demosthenes, the great Greek orator, uh, putting rocks in his mouth. And it just seemed like to really get that, like, that moderate self-deprecation, but at the same time, like, having this really esoteric reference in a way to kind of like make people think and kind of push to not be just an easy um, one-two punch joke. Yeah, he always wanted to use intelligent names, but he claims, and I think he's true, he said my humor, my stand-up humor was based on Bob Hope. Set up, you know, a, a surprise and punchline. Uh, so he gave me all that material, and then we we carved material out of that, and then and then I wrote some always. And there was a terrific guy named David Weinberg, who now is a Harvard on the Harvard faculty as a futurist, much as Buckminster Fuller was. And David wrote wonderful jokes. Uh, he, he, I remember one joke he wrote. I threw the I Ching uh, uh, and got the uh, I've forgotten what the noun is. Got the mixture. Shove off, Jew boy. And the syndicate changed it to I I I, I threw the I Ching and got the the proposition shove off shorty they were always <laughs> they were always cutting uh, uh, sharp esoteric things they told me not so much God not so much sex not so much psychoanalysis and Woody was saying well you don't want just another uh, run of the mill comic strip do you let's Let's be edgy. Let's go out. If we lose people, fine. Let's get the people who understand my humor. So, so I often felt like a, a schizophrenic in a in a split level house, you know, living at the intersection <laughs> of three state lines. Well, I mean, th that kind of goes to the themes of uh, Woody's work too. <laughs> Sex, <laughs> well, he, God, death. He never, he never, in all the years I worked with him on the strip and in the long time, he kind of looked at the book. He never made he never made a correction or a critique, uh, 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 which was about him. Do you know not for his ego. I never felt he had all the power. I was you know uh, this cartoonist and eager to do the strip, and he was already uh, internationally famous. He never ever leaned on me or pushed 
or did anything like that. It was always about the integrity of the work as he saw it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's most important, and something which in comic strips you may not feel as much, where it doesn't seem like it's a notion of integrity in a lot of comic strips. Is that if that's a good way of putting it? Say that again. Like it, with, with a lot of uh, comic strips, a lot of like the contemporaries of that uh, of that time, it wouldn't be so much focused on really like, hey, let's have a you know, other than say like Doonesbury having some thought behind it. Oh, there, there were very few intelligence strips. Of course, long before had been both Pogo and Little Abner and uh, and Crazy Cat. You know, yeah. And this was uh, when did uh, Doonesbury begin? I, was it out already? When I we think did you. Our s- I think you actually mentioned it in 1970. He did. It, was he at Yale then? Is that it? Possibly. I can't remember. My my Doonesbury knowledge is <laughs> woefully inadequate. My my Crazy Cat knowledge is a little better. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Crazy Cat was beyond intelligent. It was poetry, surely. Mm-hmm. There, there's, it was so singular. Uh, you know, there never was anything anywhere near like it either. For me, graphically both in the line art itself and in the non-objective things. He would have a doorway and there'd be a plate over it, and in the next panel would be the same doorway and something different would be over it. Do you remember those details? Yeah. Uh, oh, a yeah. wonderful kind of a strip, and that very that language he invented was, was in its way similar to the Pogo language and to the little Abner language. But both the Pogo language and the Abner language were glosses on Southern talk. Uh, uh, hillbilly in Cap's case with Abner, and a kind of a mountain, a back mountain case uh, in the case of Walt Kelly. Mm-hmm. But the crazy cat language of George Harriman was sui generis. There was nothing quite like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the small triangle, that very intense triangle between uh, crazy officer pup and uh, and uh, Ignat, uh, uh, was something that never happened again in the strip. Uh, but they were certainly all the same in that they were intelligent. We tried for intelligence, but many of the jokes, you know, many of them are run-of-the-mill based on Woody's own uh, own persona that he used in the 60s. Did, did, did I assume that the publisher sent you this book, yes? Yeah, yeah I've got a Good. copy right You know what I'm talking about yeah. all the way here. Yeah, <clears throat> and that's something really I didn't know is uh, Pogo for Woody was a really, like, was kind of, what he visualized as like the perfect comic strip, it seems like. Oh, it was wonderful. It was just sensational. He also liked Abner a lot. I don't know that he and I ever spoke about Crazy or that he wrote about it, but uh, uh, but he did like he did like Abner. And and you see in the preface I wrote where he's quoted from the notes. I took notes of all our meetings generally, pencil mm-hmm. notes in a yellow pad. And he said that he wanted an intelligence strip. I think like Abner. And he said instead of just one liners where the joke ends after a day. He said, I'd like whole sequences. Remember that? He said, like Abner, uh, with characters connecting and stories running, he said, I remember the schmoo and Sadie Hawkins' day. Uh, Cap, I worked for Cap. Did you know that as a kid? That's something I was going to ask you some questions about. Okay, in just a minute you can. I just want to make the point that that uh, uh, when I met Cap, it was because I, w- had a, I was an advertising copywriter as a kid. And I suggested that he take Fearless Fosdick, that I let him, that I suggested that he let uh, a client, a Wild Root Cremor, which was a hair tonic, he, that he let me take Fosdick. You remember that was his parody of Dick Tracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I wanted to use that for ads 
and and he said, well, it, it's an interesting idea, and I'd love the money, but, but he said, I don't write single jokes in a strip. I said, well, I'll do it. He said, okay, if you can do it, <laughs> let's do it. And I did that. But but he wasn't a joke-a-day guy, and Woody wanted more more long lines. Remember, he said, perhaps I, if I'm not in every joke. If you do that and have my psychiatrist and let me see her at home and have my parents. So he wanted it to be both intelligent and not just a joke a day and not wholly focused on him. He had a good overview. You see how the ego wasn't there. He didn't say, I have to be in everything and, uh, you know, and all the punchlines have to be mine. He didn't do that. No, it was encapsulating just brief moments in time, just brief ideas. If that's it. How yourself, as a cartoonist, what drew you into cartooning? Obviously, uh, Mentioning the three, Little Abner, Crazy Cat, and Poco all influences. Are you asking what drew me to cartooning? Yeah, what what was the, well, the bug? Well, it's hard to know. There was no aha moment like somebody yeah. says. You know, I saw no Eureka. Uh, Eugene O'Neill play, and I knew I wanted to be a playwright or an actor or a director. I have been drawing since since pre-kindergarten. It mm-hmm. was like walking for me. I, You know, I remembered, I still can remember sitting in the kitchen before I went to school drawing on paper so I drew and drew and drew and in I think I had my first cartoon published in uh, around around in the 30s in the late 30s when I lived in Washington in the junior high school uh, it was Alice Field Junior High and I did a I did a little cartoon it was a panel gag it wasn't a strip and uh, we had bus tickets in those days I remember little purple bus tickets for three cents, and you, you gave the ticket to the driver. And I, I had a bus pulling away from a stop, and a, and a boy, a kid, with his books running up to the stop, holding his ticket out as the bus pulled away. And the series that I hoped to do it was called That's Life. In other words, already I was seeing that... <laughs> 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 that you're going to miss a lot of opportunities in life. The great comedian Fred Allen, have you heard of him? Yeah. He was an American radio comedian from the, the 30s through the 40s, probably 32 to 49, uh, with his wonderful voice. Uh, he said, uh, uh, the world is a grindstone and life is your nose. Well, I knew that as a, as a 13-year-old. <laughs> and my first cartoon was published for the junior high school newspaper. Now, they showed me, they maybe even gave me, it was a zinc cut. Have you ever, do you know about printing in zinc? Maybe you don't. Is it like the press plates that they'd use, like it would be like a negative image? Yeah, but when I was a kid, there were no computers, of course, mm-hmm. and there were no negatives and, uh, you know, and uh, and rolling presses. Everything was was done with acid. In other words, I drew a cartoon with that little cartoon, that's like the kid running for the bus. Those ink lines were, I don't know, maybe through photography or something, put on zinc and then acid ate away anything that wasn't the ink line. So uh, you probably made, uh, did you make ever make linoleum prints or prints with, with soap where you'd cut out letters? Oh, I, I, I'm not very crafty myself, but I do know what you're talking about. Yeah, well, yeah. it looks like making a printed poster. Yeah. And I was given that zinc plate, and I'm telling you, my heart leapt up. I thought I had won the Nobel Prize or that, that maybe that was what sex was because it was just stunning to me to see that my stuff, and then I never did any more in the series. <laughs> <laughs> it was a one-panel series. 
But my next strip, and I only did that once, was in high school in 1941 by then in Bradford, Pennsylvania, and it's right here in the room with me. Uh, uh, and it showed a kid uh, uh, a little, uh, he looked like a little Percy. He had little nice shorts on, a little nice bow tie. But he saw a rough-hewn kid climbing over the wall of a ballpark instead of going in. The kid was sneaking over the wall. So this kid uh, in the next panel is with the police chief, and he says, I saw the kid you know, climbing over the wall. The police chief said, thanks for reporting this kid. Here's a dollar. Then the little fancy kid take, goes to the ballpark, and he climbs over the fence himself. So there's another <laughs> observation that we're all hypocrites, you know. So to, so to answer your question, what drew me to cartooning, it wasn't Crazy Cat. It wasn't even comic strips because I hadn't seen them. Oh, I okay. had, of course, by the time I was a, a young teen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I always wanted to be a cartoonist only, ever, you know. And now that I'm a brain surgeon and have been so successful at it and have won the Nobel, it means nothing to me. <laughs> <laughs> now, you got connected with El Cap, th- you're saying, through advertising? Yeah, what time? happened was... He was a liberal back then, or, or supposedly, and I, I had heard him make a speech. It was during the Joseph McCarthy. You know that name, yep. surely, do you not? Mm-hmm. Yes? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, he was a senator. I, I knew that when I was uh, probably 10. Are you in your 20s? You sound very young. I'm 31. Oh, my God, you're over the hill, Robin. Yep. That's it. It's it's all downhill from here. You probably should call the funeral home and see if they have a special for the rest of December, because 31 is really... <laughs> Ooh. Gee, I'm sorry, Robin. Uh, I know. It's, Where uh, were we? I get so far from the mothership, I can't get back sometimes. Oh, yeah, Cap. Yeah. I heard him make a speech, and it was a very liberal speech about people are different and we should all care about each other. And I thought, my God, and I loved Abner. You know, after by the time I was a teenager, comic strips were big stuff because there was no television then. There was only visually Life magazine, which was how my generation saw the war until we went to it, which I did. But, but so comics were larger in the paper, and there were more of them, and the newspapers were stronger, and there were more newspapers, as you know. There were probably eight or nine in New York. Now there are three. Mm-hmm. Uh, the New York Times, no comic strips. The New York News, a lot of comic strips. The New York Post, I think a page of comics. But then comics proliferated. They were everywhere. So I loved them. I loved Little Abner, which probably also began, I think, in the early 30s. Wouldn't you say around 34? So, yes. I'm uh, I will go with you. I yeah, I think sure. that's outright. Uh, Dennis Kitchen produced a lot of Abner, uh, mm-hmm. a kitchen sink press, uh, a whole bunch of Abner books. But I, around 34, so I was eight years old, and I loved Skippy. I love Toonerville Trolley. Have you seen all these? Probably you're a comics I've guy. seen some. My, my strip knowledge isn't as good as my... Um, Knowledge of underground and more modern uh-huh. stuff, but I know I know some. Yeah, well, the only underground then was probably people trying to kill Hitler, but <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't a cartoon underground that I knew. Though there were, there were uh, uh, dirty comic books from Cuba. Did you ever see those things? Are they, these the Tijuana Bibles? Tijuana Bibles. They were yeah. disgusting. Uh, I saw Dick Tracy and. Uh, and Tess Trueheart was terrible, and they had the male organ very large, and uh, the act was shown in these things. Cap told me, and then I'll go back to Cap in a minute, uh, how we met. Cap told me that he had begun this comic strip 
and uh, little Abner, and he, and it began in a very just a very few papers. You know, he had worked for the Joe Palooka guy, Ham Fisher, mm-hmm. but he sold this comic strip, and he was concerned uh, if it would last, if it would go. And somebody gave him a Tijuana Bible that was a takeoff on Abner, and he said to himself, "Oh boy, if it's strong enough to have been satirized, I'm I'm going to make it." <laughs> <laughs> Gee, I've never told that story to. That's what? a great one. It's interesting. So uh, I heard him make the speech, and I liked him a lot. And I was working in advertising, and I was always looking for the main chance in cartooning. Because uh, I'll tell you about how I met Fred Allen, that very comedian I talked about. And I liked, Cap- I mean, I liked, I loved seeing Cap. And uh, I don't know if I met him. It was at a synagogue. It was a talk in Rochester. <clears throat> and somebody knew I loved Abner and invited me down from Buffalo. I was in the... Now, this is when I was in, it's now around 1954, and uh, I was probably 28 years old, and there was a, uh, an all-night restaurant right inside of, the, of Grand Central Terminal, and you could enter it from 42nd Street. I've forgotten the name of it. And I went in there, and there was Cap with two or three newspapers at a, brec- at a table having breakfast. So I went up to him and told him that I had heard his uh, speech in Rochester, and that I liked it a lot, and, gee, I'd love to use some of his cartoons and advertising and he said well here's here's the phone number to call it was a new york office that his brother ran for what they called cap enterprises the brother elliot kaplan now dead was the writer of a stan drake do it uh, uh drew it it was a story strip called Juliet, the heart of juliet jones did you ever see that no you know what story strips are like ma like like uh they were not funny yeah yeah like um Mary Worth. Mary Worth, exactly. Alan yeah. Saunders drew that. Uh, this was like a Mary Worth strip. It was called Juliet Jones. And then he had a medical strip called, I think, Rex Morgan, M.D. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, the, and, and Elliot produced comic books. And Mel Lazarus, do you know that name? No. Mel did Miss Peach and Mama. Do you know those comic strips? No. Well, Robin, you... There's flunked, so much to know. You flunked the Citizen Arcane test. There I'm going to go. give you... The, it's like a hook, only it's only it's a, an audio hook. We're going to pull you <laughs> off the stage. <laughs> Next contestant. Oh, no. Now, Lazarus is a nice cartoonist. He's still around. Uh, Miss Peach was sort of a, a, a markdown Peanuts with a lot of kids and a school principal. Took place mostly in school. And then... And then uh, Mama was a, a Jewish, uh, not Jewish, actually, but that kind of of hovering uh, uh, too much with you, Mother. It's a comic strip. And I think it still runs. It, it was wonderful. When the Führer says, me is the master race, we heil, heil, right in the Führer's face, not to love the Führer, is the greatest grace, so we heil, heil, right in the Führer's face. 
When her Goebbels says, we own the world in space, be higher, higher, ride in her Goebbels space. When her Goering says, he'll never bomb this place, be higher, higher, ride in her Goering space. Are we not the Superman, alien pure Superman? Yeah, we is the Superman. Super duper Superman. Is this Nazi land so good? Would you leave it if you could? Yeah, this Nazi land is good. We would leave it if we could. We bring the world new order. I'll hit this world new order. Everyone of foreign race will love the Fuhrer space when we bring to the world disorder. When the Fuhrer says, we is the master race, we hire, hire, right in the Fuhrer space, not to love the Fuhrer is the greatest race, so we hire, hire, right in the Fuhrer space. Not to love the Fuhrer is the greatest grace, so be higher, higher, right in the Fuhrer's face. <laughs> I was talking about Cap somehow. How about uh, uh, some of the cartooning scene that he was around uh, what at was the that? time? I mean, you... the guys who worked for him, that's yeah. why. He had four guys. And, and did I mention Andy Amato? I can't remember. I said he had a lettering guy, yeah, and then he had a guy who did backgrounds, and another guy who sort of drew stuff, but Andy Amato was his chief assistant, and Andy penciled the strips. Al would write them, give them a typed, you know, the dailies and sunnies were on typed sheets, and Andy would lay them out and draw them. Okay. But even though he penciled in the faces of the major characters, that is Abner, Daisy May, Mammy, Pappy, Moonbeam, McSwine, you know... Uh, Al never told Andy that his pencil faces were inadequate. He waited till Andy left at five or six o'clock, redrew the pencils and re and inked them himself. He, and oh, the only things Al ever inked were the major faces. Andy inked all the faces of uh, Joe. Remember Joe B F S T P L K? I think so. The guy who had the cloud over his head. Wherever he was, bad things were happening. And and uh, that was like our our President Bush same thing. And I, I asked Cap, how do you pronounce Joe BFSTP? He says, Joe <laughs> So, And remember uh, uh, Earthquake Magoon? Do you remember? Do you know Abner at all? A, a little, but I haven't read much. Robin, those, do you have these books or not? They're out of print now. No, they're, they're out not of out of print. They're not even out of print. Mark down on your... Pe- do you have a pencil and paper? Oh, I do. I always want to write it. All right, of course you do. Notes. Put down uh, Kitchen Sink Press. You know about Dennis. Oh, it's no, I, I've actually... I know Dennis. I've interviewed him. Um, oh, he, he, his things are not out of print. No, his company shut down Oh, yeah, but he's doing stuff now, but those books are around. I mean, aren't they on eBay or on, on AB... Do you know about the book the book search? Uh, yeah, uh, A-Books. A-B-E-Books is yeah. one. Add-All is another. 
and Alibris, A-L-I-B-R-I-S, is another. Those three right there. I think Amazon even has an old book search. Another one is Powell's Bookstore just underneath your... Oh, I've been to Powell's. It's wonderful. Powell's in Seattle might have them. The other one is Strand Books in New York. Those books are around. Now, the next time we talk for my next book, which will be in 10 to 15 years, when I <laughs> mention Abner, I want you to say, shut up! I'll tell you about Abner. Oh, I've done go. my Abner studies. I have a doctorate in Abner. In Abertology? Abnerology? Abnerology. Anyway, so for this one, Andy Amato drew the whole strip. I wrote it. And Cap got a lot of dose, so he said to me, why don't, why don't you come and work for me, and we'll do ads. So I left my ad job and went to Al in Boston and stayed two years. It was two pretty tough years. He was a, not like Woody at all. He was. I've heard some horror stories. All true. Um, what, what did you hear? Well, just I've heard that he, like you're talking, he was very liberal, at one point, and then he did a like complete shift. Did he ever? Into do you know what happened to create that shift? I I, I can take a guess. I, it would be presumptuous of me to say, Robin, I can tell you why Al. Yeah, you can. Liberal to conservative, and and then some. First of all, I don't think he was a real liberal. I think that this is only my gloss, and it may be wrong, but I was around a lot socially and in his house and at parties, and I traveled with him, and, and you know. <clears throat> he lived in Cambridge, which, as you know, is where Harvard reigns supreme. Yeah. And he lived in an old, uh, uh, a colonial uh, 18th century house. Uh, his name was Kaplan, C-A-P-L-I-N, and, uh, and he shortened it. He, he, he had it uh, circumcised to Cap. And he got to be at parties and in the social circle, not deeply, but peripherally, with some of the Harvard Liberals, I'll give you some names. Arthur Schlesinger Jr., you know that name. That's very familiar. Well, he was a, he, his father was a professor at Harvard, and so was he. He was a friend and confidant of John Kennedy. He wrote the book A Thousand Days, which was about the Kennedy assess, about Kennedy's uh, uh, term in office. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a scholar, an editor, and a writer. But he was there at Cambridge as a Harvard professor. Do you know the name John Kenneth Galbraith, G-A-L-B-R-A-I-T? I know that name, yeah. He may also have been a Canadian. He was an economist also at Harvard, but the leading economist, certainly the leading economist writer in, in not only the United States but in the world, John Kenneth Galbraith. The novelist John P. Marquand, do you know that name, M-A-R-Q-U-A-N-D? No. no. Uh, was a, a, a prominent American novelist of, of social manners, uh, the late George Apley is perhaps the best known, uh, uh, and he lived in Boston. These kinds of people, Cap was around because he was amusing. But, this, again, only my theory. But he never was on the inner circle because he was not an intellectual at all, and these people all were. They uh, saw deeply into the American grain and indeed into the human, into the human condition. Cap was a terrific observer a marvelous uh, humorist, um, but that was all. It, it's okay, I'm not knocking it, but yeah. it wasn't on a par uh, for intellectual depth with these other folks. And and I think that the fact that, my guess is, the fact that they didn't take him in to their inner circle and make him one of them, 
and since I don't believe he had that he was a liberal out of conviction, I think only only to better himself in a society he wanted to be in. Would you say he, out of convenience? What? Out of convenience, not well, out, out of out of a desire to be accepted. You know, yeah. he had his leg uh, amputated when he was nine. You know that? No, I did not. Oh, for heaven's sake! He was riding on a on an ice truck. Uh, ice was delivered in in hundred pound squares and seventy five and fifty and twenty five pounds. Mm-hmm. Even when I was a kid, there were no electric ice boxes, and he was hooking a ride either in 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 uh, I think he lived in New Haven or Bridgeport. He fell off and a and a onto a onto a, a trolley track and a trolley car ran over his leg now that's very painful that's smart and his leg was removed as a nine-year-old that did something to him yeah <clears throat> this very very sensitive boy and he had a wooden leg from then on indeed he wrote for atlantic monthly at around 1955 four autobiograph well a, a couple of autobiographical essays and one of them was called um, Young Van Schuyler's Greatest Romance. It was about a boy, like, it was autobiographic, about a boy who, who, who met a girl. She, he was standing, so you couldn't tell he had a wooden leg. He was probably 16, 17 years old. And she was in a car, in a, in a, a very fancy car, like a, a Packard or a Pierce Arrow. And he just saw her face. She was pretty. So without limping, he was able to get to the car and, and chatted with her and flirted, and she said, oh, come to a party at my house, or I guess come for a date. Yeah. And he went for a date, uh, 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 glad that she hadn't seen that he limped, and when this pretty girl opened the door, she was very fat. So he hadn't seen her body, and she didn't know about his. It's a wonderful story. He was a good prose writer, though he did very little. But he wrote those stories. (laughs) He was... He was cheating on his wife a lot, the way Tiger Woods is cheating on his wife. Mm-hmm. And he was cheating with a woman whose husband was a famous novelist, John Steinbeck. Do you know that name? Yeah. Grapes of Wrath, etc. Mm-hmm. And to impress that woman, uh, she said, everything you write, Al, uh, <laughs> ends up uh, wrapping fish that's thrown into the garbage the next morning. But what my husband, John, writes ends up in library shelves bound in leather. So he quickly made a deal with the Atlantic Monthly where he knew <laughs> Charlie Morton, the editor, and said, I'm, I'm going to write, did you ever hear his voice? I, I'm going to write an autobiographical book uh, called The World of, uh, of Al Cap, and I'm going to do chapters, and I'll, I'll do them as essays, and, and you can publish them as articles. He wrote four of those, uh, of which Young Van Schuyler's greatest romance was one, and I think she said, gee, you're a good writer, and he never wrote prose much again except for magazine art you know and just throw away things he wrote another very perceptive one about charlie chaplin this is before chaplin had been i mean he chaplin was famous of course yeah but he hadn't yet uh, broken through in the intellectual world as the really truly great great cinema artist that he was and al wrote a very and there were no biographies of chaplin at that time and al wrote a very very perceptive piece on Chaplin that I like very much. The other one was called I Remember Monster, and that's based on a very popular play that was called I Remember Mother, I think it was. I Remember Monster was, without his name, uh, based on the Joe Palooka artist, Ham Fisher, for whom Cap worked and for whom Cap was an assistant. And, and, and Ham Fisher uh, was very cheap with Al and very cruel to Al. And the interesting thing is, that many years later when I worked with Al, I wasn't his assistant, but 
because we had a little corporation. But I, I was the lesser of in the in the in the group. <laughs> he was the famous, and I was the unknown. He treated me cruelly and and cheaply. So <laughs> it's very interesting to me. It's, you there's, know, there's uh, all these interesting little linkages everything has to each other. Yeah, and so you've heard stories about Cap. So he was a marvelous, marvelous artist. His drawings were exquisite, I thought, and his writing was superb, totally original, very special. It was the the first and uh, 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 amusing story strip. That is, he did not do Gag a Day. You know, everything mm-hmm. else was Gag a Day, Gasoline Alley, and well, Gasoline Alley was a story too, though. Well, I guess it was. Yeah, I guess it was, but it it wasn't nearly. It was not on a level with Abner, you know. It wasn't as funny as Abner. Mm-hmm. I guess it was more of a it was more of a soap opera, wasn't it? Wouldn't yeah. Say? Yeah. But Abner was highly funny. I mean, that's funny stuff. He had a he had a senator called Jack S. Fogbound, good old Fogbound, P H O G B O U N D, good old Jack S. And when Jack S. went out into Dogpatch, which was the little town that the Faulknerian town, you know, that Cap invented, mm-hmm. where Abner lived. Um, when Jack S. went out to get votes, he went out in a sound truck, you know, vote for Jack S. Fogbound, good old Jack S. And in the truck, he had a, a turntable to play records, and his speeches were on the record. On one side, he was, he was pro whatever he was talking about, and on the other side, he was anti, and he would flip it according to what he thought the people wanted to hear. Now, that's damn good satire for a daily comic strip, don't you think? Oh, yeah. And you know that Walt Kelly had a senator, remember that, during McCarthy? He had a, a weasel called Simple J. Malarkey. Did you ever see that? No. Simple J. Malarkey was a weasel, and he looked just like just like uh, uh, Senator McCarthy. And a newspaper removed it, took, took uh, 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 Pogo out, uh, and, and their excuse wrote, and they said, essentially, editorial uh, 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 writing should not appear... The characters should not appear on the comic pages. And Walt Kelly responded and said, I, I don't think essentially comic characters should appear on the editorial pages. <laughs> <laughs> he was a great man. He was a terrific guy. Kelly. I met Kelly, thank heavens. He's uh, left quite the uh, impression on comics. Uh, say again? He, he's left quite the impression on the, on the comic field. Oh, po- Kelly? Yeah. Yes, and he was quite a lovely human being, a wonderful man. I also met Kenneth briefly. That was fun. I have. They gave me originals, oh, and wow. I, I knew I knew for a short time Charlie Schultz, Sparky Schultz, yeah, and uh, and and a lot of the modern guys. You know, Jules Pfeiffer and well, Johnny in, Hart, and yeah, Jules is in New York. So yeah, Jules lives in this very apartment house. I'm on ten, and he's on twelve. Oh, that's funny. Have you interviewed Jules? Not yet. I oh, want to could. though. He has a memoir coming out next year. Ah. And tell him you spoke to me. He's a nice guy. I yeah, like I'm. I'm Fanagraphics' is publisher. I'm very close. Like work with them a lot. So. Oh, you know growth. Yep. Oh, then you know his big magazine that he sometimes gets out, right? The Comics Journal. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote a piece about Cap. Uh, about well, I did a strip with Jack Davis. Did you ever read that piece I wrote? No, but I love Jack Davis. Oh well, let me. Get, uh, you mean physically or? Uh, cartooningly. <laughs> okay, wait, what have I done with my glasses here? God damn it. Now let me find my glasses. I'm going to give it the date. I have the comics journal. journal. Where are my glasses? Okay, Robin, nobody leaves the room here. <laughs> wait a minute. Damn. 
and you do the site yourself too, don't you? Yep. Where are my glasses? Can you believe I'm in my very house? <laughs> Did they fall on the floor? I've got to be careful not to step. Oh, my heavens. Well, that isn't your problem. Oh, here they are on the chair. <laughs> okay, here's the comics journal. Uh, Gary asked me to write. He, I did a strip with Jack. We never sold it. It was called Pure Clem. I kind of lifted it from Abner. <laughs> and that's what I wrote about how stupid I was. The Comics Journal is uh, a special edition, volume four. I know you're writing. Winter 2004. There's, okay. There's a Hirschfeld on the cover. You probably yeah, have it, though. I know that book. Yeah, it's got the conversation between Chris Ware and Pfeiffer in it, I think. Uh, Sarah Glory that was Simpsons, Jack Davis, Unpublished Comics, to Lionel Feininger. I don't see, I don't know, but there's a Hirsch, I, I knew Hirschfeld quite well, by the way. Uh, anyway, I wrote about, um, and there's something a mouse in here, too, some Spiegelman in here, and I know Art. Mm-hmm. Have you talked to Art? I've met him, but I haven't done an interview with him yet. Well, he's terrific. I've interviewed his wife. You met, uh, uh, uh Francoise? I, I interviewed her Oh, last you interviewed year. her, oh, good. Yeah. He's a very smart guy he and is an intellectual. Yeah. Funny thing is, she's from France and would like to stay in America, where her job is terrific as, as the New Yorker cover art director, and he is mad at the country and wants to move away. <laughs> there you go. I think that's dissipated a little in time. You think? Yeah. Hopefully. More recently. Anyway, ask away. Um, it, it's interesting, you know, all these, all the, the, the modern comic stuff, where you around any of the um, the actual comic book folks in the 50s and 60s? No, I wasn't, but as a 10-year-old, a friend of my dad's bought me, uh, uh, took me to a took me to a newsstand, this was in Elmira, New York, and said, pick anything you want, and there was something called Famous Funnies <laughs> that I had never seen, and it had Dickie Dare by Milton Kniff, it had something called The Wet Blanket, I don't remember who did it, it was the first edition. It was a dime, and I understand. Is it worth a lot now? It is one of the first comic books, as far as I know. I think it must have been funnies. the first. Funny. I mean, I never saw anything. I had it, and then I probably threw it away. Oh. I loved it. Oh, Hair Brett Terry was another. Have you ever heard of these? No. Probably Google. I've never Googled them. Hair Brett, H-A-I-R-B-R-E-A-D-T-H, Hair Brett Terry, The Wet Blanket was another one. <laughs> probably the guy was... Uh, was uh, boring. Yeah. Dickie Dare, did you ever hear of that? By Milton Kniff, long before Terry. Mm-hmm. This would have been 1935 or 6, around there. See if those things, that, that issue, that number number one must still exist. It's somewhere. I think there's uh, people that have been actually uh, archiving original images mm. from those uh, Golden Age comics, mm. so you can actually like see the original, you know, like scans of it online. Oh, well, somebody once asked me years ago, maybe Al Feldstein or somebody to, to do stuff for Mad, because I know Al Jaffe and uh, Arnold Roth, and I knew Harvey Kurtzman, but I never did any comic strip work. You know, I never, for a while, wasn't really a cartoonist, and I'm, I may not even be ever. I, I've done so much stuff that I, I, I'm a multimedia failure. I've, you know, <laughs> written television and a, a small novel and a lot of humor books and kids' books, and I've illustrated them and written stuff I haven't. I've written plays. I've written movies that haven't been produced. I wrote some sitcoms. So it's been a sort of a <laughs> a disparate career, if you can, in, indeed, if you can even call it a career. Varied. Maybe. Well, that's interesting because I find the artwork in the Woody Allen strips, they're so tight. 
and you were producing quite a lot at that time. So for someone that's not a cartoonist, that's a pretty healthy output. Huh. Well, you knew I had another comic strip, if you looked at the book. Well, yeah, you had one that ran for famous. about three years, right? Yeah. Uh, no, it didn't run that long. I don't think it ran even a year. Oh, okay. I'm not sure. I, I would guess a year or less. Uh, I loved it. See, that drawing was more plumpy, more Milk Grossish, you know. More, it was more, it, uh, to me it was richer, and it was my own stuff. So it had my blood in it and my sweat in it more than the Woody one. I, I don't love the, I mean, the Woody drawings are nice. I love the book. I think it's a terrific, terrific uh, production that they did. Beautifully designed. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you notice the forward uh, introduction was by Buckminster Fuller? I was going to ask about it. It's okay, pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did he end up doing a, a forward? He did uh, in '79, I think. Random House wanted to do some comic, some of these strips. You knew there was a book before, right? Yep, there's a couple, weren't there? Uh, just one. It was okay. called Non Being and Somethingness. That was Woody's title based on Jean Paul Sartre's Being and Nothingness. And on a whim, he said, let's call it Non Being and Somethingness. It only had, I think, about 60 strips. They were reproduced merely in line art, just the black and white. The strips, there were 60 strips there. The strips, 220 or so, in this new book from Abrams, Dread and Superficiality, have been photographed as if they're pieces of art, paintings. Yeah. And so you see the tape and the pencil marks and the mistakes and the whiteout and stampings and, and, and writings on it from the syndicate production people, not on everything, but on lots of them. Uh, and for that first book, which was only a paperback, and this is a large hardcover. This is really, truly an art book. It's quite beautiful. Yeah, it's a, it's a dandy book. Uh, I wanted somebody to write an introduction for the first one, as I wanted Dick Cavett and Marshall Brickman to do it for this one. And I thought, do I want the average cartoonist or the average comedian? And I asked one of my sons, Henry. He said, well, out, of, out of nowhere, he said, why don't you get Buckminster Fuller? <laughs> so I found Fuller, and he said, sure, I'd love to do it. And he did it as a comic strip. It, it's it, it is a Buckminster Fuller comic strip. It's amazing. You see all these odd shapes. Well, you know what together. the concept of it is. Did you get to read it? I read some of it. <clears throat> Do you, it can you tell me what the concept is? No. Being tested. Not. Huh? I'm being tested. <laughs> anyway, the, <laughs> I'm just messing with your head because it's fun. I know. Um, uh, I'll cry later. <laughs> it's complex. The, con- the, con- the concept of what Buckminster Fuller did is, and when you look at it, you'll see that this is true. He lays it out. He, he, he posits that the, that the cosmos was created for one purpose, namely so there would be a Woody Allen. <laughs> and the funny thing is, uh, people read this book and they love it. They read the other one, they loved it. Nobody, not one person has ever said, wow, what a, what a notion to get Buckminster Fuller, which is from left field, and how brilliant and singular his conception was of Woody Allen. And he did it and drew it. And typed out, the, he didn't hand letter it, he typed out the stuff that was on tissue. It's a wonderful piece of artwork it by is. itself. And like, he and himself is as much a, a has a, you know, tremendous cultural legacy. And so to, like, bring that into this book... Oh, yeah. I mean, in Vancouver, we have uh, one of our main things uh, building here. It's a geodesic dome, which... You do? Yeah. 
it was built for the uh, expo in 1986. And what's in it? It's got our science world. A what? A science world? Yeah, you know, a little science thing for so kids. So you can walk in it and stuff, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's huge. I've never seen one. I've only seen drawings. Yeah, there's a lot in uh, British Columbia, just on the wow. Vancouver Island and things, folks. I had a friend growing up who had one in his house, like part of the house was a geodesic dome. wish I had had a friend growing up. I'm sure you have plenty now. <laughs> I, I, well, I probably offended them all, and that's just since breakfast. <laughs> Each day I have to start over. There we go. Well, that's what comic strips are for. They're the, for the <laughs> friends we don't have, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's why we love them. So, thank you so much for talking to me today, You're welcome. Stu. Um, I really got a lot out of this conversation. Oh, good. I'm glad. I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm happy to, to do it. Thank you.